turn can't hear what these suckers say. I'm out here doing everything you suckers can't. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. I got my inspiration for this episode introduction, which usually they're not very flamboyant, but watched a video of Ray. And in that video, he read this amazing poem. It touched me and I want to share it. And I thought, what better way to begin this episode than with Ray's poem? And, you know, Verda, we can't have a podcast like, like this without talking about Ray Anderson and the legacy that he left. So I'm going to read this poem. It's called Tomorrow's Child. It's by Glenn Thomas, who uh, was an Interface employee at the time. And he wrote this poem after Ray addressed a group of employees with his sustainability mission. Right, Lisa? Am I? Yep. I, okay. Yep. So um, let me read this poem and then we'll get, we'll get started because I fell in love with it. It's called Tomorrow's Child, without a name, an unseen face, and knowing not your time nor place. Tomorrow's child, though yet unborn, I met you first last Tuesday morn. A wise friend introduced us to, and through his sobering point of view, I saw a day that you would see, a day for you, but not for me. Knowing you has changed my thinking, for I never had an inkling that perhaps the things I do might someday somehow threaten you. Tomorrow's child, my daughter, son, I'm afraid I've just begun to think of you and of your good, though always having known I should. Begin, I will, to weigh the cost of what I squander what is lost. If ever I forget that you will someday come to live here too. It's an amazing, amazing poem that I think puts, it puts it all in perspective. And if you can't get your act together after looking at it through a lens like that, you're hopeless. <laughs> so uh, Lisa, welcome. And I'm going to, I'm going to turn it over to my, my partner in crime, Verda, to tell us a little bit about today's guest. Thank you, John. So the best part of this podcast is all of the amazing people that I've been getting to meet. And today is no exception. And John, are these people all really your friends? Verda, <laughs> yeah. everybody's my friend, whether they want to admit to it or not. <laughs> yeah, Lisa's horrified. She's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not giving that guy bail money. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, John and I do always do a bit of research before each podcast to get to know our guests better and to have a few thought-provoking questions in our back pocket. And I, the more I dug you up, dug up info on you, Lisa, I was like, oh my God, I'm already in love with her. <laughs> who, who says embodied carbon is my favorite thing to talk about <laughs> um, and who says a defined path doesn't excite me a dissenter mm -hmm. a dissenter that's who a rebel someone with a mission to change the world and is ready to break some serious dishes to do it lisa went to drexel university and you still live in philadelphia right yep yep that's and that is a super hip town. You started as a designer and then went back to work or, and then went to work at Interface in sales and accounts for many years. 
before becoming VP of Sustainability in 2017. And I'm super excited to talk to you about your climate take back initiative and how Interface is prioritizing embodied carbon and even your efforts to lead sustainability in your own neighborhood where you live. Well, welcome, Lisa. Let's talk about some of your favorite things. And let's break some dishes. Man, you guys are pulling all kinds of stuff out. Hey. I'm glad that we moved on to like fun stuff because tomorrow's child is like you're pulling that from the depths of interface history and it's it's still emotional to hear it um yeah and to know that one of our employees was inspired enough to write it so yeah and i'll tell you what i cry pretty easy so (laughs) just the fact that i made it through that without crying is uh, i'm impressed yeah but uh anyway yeah so lisa conway in the podcast here with Verda Alexander and John Strausner, and she's going to break some damn dishes. And uh, we got some great questions for you. I'm going to let Verda get things started. Yeah, let's let's maybe just delve into your history a little bit. How did you become VP of Sustainability for, for Interface? Yeah, it was like a lot of people in sustainability, it wasn't a straight path. Most people that are in full-time sustainability roles don't have, I don't know, what's the perfect degree, environmental science, like, you know, something like that. I came by way of interior design degree because that makes just tons of sense, right? (laughs) More than you think. Yeah. I actually started at St. Joe's with a German or, or major in German and international marketing and I probably should have stayed with that, but I realized that ultimately I just kind of wanted to be a German, like <laughs> and no one pays you for that. So I moved to yeah. moved to interior design at Drexel um, and lasted a whopping seven months as an interior designer. Hey, it's all about evolution, man. Thanks for the expensive education. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did the same thing. I lasted seven months as a landscape architect or in oh, perfect. architecture. Okay. Yeah. Starting, in, starting an interior design practice. <laughs> so there you go. So there you go. But I love the industry, right? And I, you know, had made friends and literally it's it's not a sexy story. I literally said to one of the sales reps who was representing carpet, but wasn't not interface. I was like, get me the hell out of here. I will do anything. And she was hiring a showroom manager for a showroom that she was setting up here in Philly. And that that's kind of how I got into the carpet industry. I was at that company. It was called Constantine, later bought by Milliken. Mm-hmm. But I was there for two years. And Interface found me through a headhunter. I was 26 and had no idea who Interface was because they sold carpet tile. And I was used to selling high-end residents high-end kind of like law firm type broadloom. It's when I got here that I had my own spear in the chest. And after reading Ray's first book, Mid-Course Correction, I was like, man, I'm actually selling stuff that matters. The more of the stuff that I sell, the better off the world is. And it was interesting that way. And I just kind of joke that now I was I was loud enough and passionate enough for them to give me a full-time sustainability gig. And I couldn't be more happy. <laughs> really good for you yeah i love it yeah that's and that's i think that's the way you want it because you know it's almost as if your passion brought you to that career path yeah. and that's it's an organic natural way that that's how it should that's how it should work yeah yeah so it was a windy road but i love it and we have i have a very small team with super smart people who know 
all the things that I may not, but together we, we have a lot to offer and a lot of different strengths, um, like any good team. So we have a lot of fun. That's really important. And we, and we break stuff, you know, cause we're breaking yeah. things here. Nice. And I'm from Philly and, you know, bad things happen in Philly. We got a <laughs> shout out on last night's debate. So <laughs> Perfect. It did, didn't it? Yeah, bad, bad things happen. Bad things. Bad things. <laughs> did, did Interface have a sustainability officer before you? Oh, yeah. So I report into both our president of the Americas business, and then we also have a chief sustainability officer for Interface Global, the Interface Inc. So Erin Mizan, I report into as well, and she's our chief sustainability officer. And we've had VPs of sustainability at Interface Americas over time, but we all come came with really different backgrounds and strengths. I think that mine is suited well, my strengths are suited well for where we are now, which is to activate our current mission of reversing global warming. And that's all about like Interface is a small company. It, you know, we're like, you know, 3,700 people or something on a given day. And we are not going to reverse global warming, but our influence can. That's a lot of what we do is try and inspire other organizations to take this journey with us so that we have a fighting chance. Yeah, that's what we all have to do, right? And so you've embraced the villain or carbon, but maybe the unintended villain, I should say. And you started (laughs) Love Carbon campaign. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So when Aaron Mizan and others, you know, Paul Hawk, and there were people involved outside of Interface too, um, creating climate take back in the pillars, Love Carbon was one of them. And that's one that we spend a lot of time talking to people about because carbon is, it's perfect for Philly. We're either slashing carbon or fighting climate change, or there's a war on carbon, like everything's violent or (laughs) negative. And Love Carbon is so different. It's looking at the, like, yes, there's too much in the atmosphere, but how can we start to look at it as a resource instead of something that we want to slash? Once it's up there, it's already up there. So how can we stop putting so much up there, which is our live zero pillar, but love carbon is all about using what's up there. And for us, that means trying to store it in products. So that's what we're on the cusp of launching next month is actually carbon negative backings and products where three of the, it's only three handful of styles to start that are fully carbon negative, but carbon negative is a positive thing. That means that we're actually storing more carbon in the product than was released into the atmosphere to make it. Is this carbon capture? That you're- yeah, you can think of it that way. I think of carbon capture when I hear that term as a more mechanical process, but plants do it naturally. So plants through photosynthesis capture carbon. When we think about carbon capture technology, we're not usually talking about plants, but that's what um, that's what we're working with in our case is plant-based materials that have that carbon stored in them, but we stop the carbon cycle by keeping them in our products instead of letting them degrade over time and then release methane into the atmosphere. I have this visual of somebody stomping on a carpet tile and like a a puff of carbon kind of, <laughs> and then, and then they've got, Oh, it's full. Oh, we, we need a new carpet. Tile. It's not that at all. <laughs> it's in the well, materials, but we've actually been training our sales force. We're like, it doesn't, it's not a vacuum. Like it's not sucking the carbon like out of the office space. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's right. The materials little, do that. It's a little <laughs> complicated to understand for sure. It can be. It can and, be. I know. 
and I think this definitely ties into embodied carbon and the fact yeah. that everything we build, everything we make has a carbon footprint. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, please. <laughs> I feel like so. Still trying so to just come out. Just come out and ask, Verda. Come on. I know. You're on the brush. I know. It's well, we've all we've all been on this learning curve, you know, myself included. In fact, when I when I started to hear about this term embodied carbon, it was and I kind of read the definition and started to hear people talk about it. I'm like, so this is operational carbon, which we've been thinking about forever in buildings. Right. That's been our priority in the, in the supply chain. Right. It's reducing carbon from operations, but in in the supply chain and why didn't we ever think about the supply chain impact before? So it really fascinated me. And, you know, how many new things come up in our industry, like truly new? And this felt like a really new topic and a new um, discussion point. And I think a real opportunity for interior designers to get engaged in the conversation. Because to some degree, you know, there's, you can, lighting specifications, you know, HVAC specifications, et cetera. But when we're talking about specifying finishes, there hasn't been a carbon conversation. And this is it. This is it. This is literally everything that you specify. And in our personal lives, everything that we buy has a carbon impact. And it feels so personal at home to like give up your car right? Like I can't do that. That's, that's personal. Specifying a more carbon smart finish, that doesn't feel as emotional to me or as much of a sacrifice as giving up my car would. But at work, designers have way more of a possibility to address global warming than at home as just one person or a family of four or in John's case, six people. <laughs> so many right. kids. Um, yeah. But, that's but, totally- but at work, it's it's just so much more opportunity yeah. by just paying attention. But we haven't, up until now, I don't think fairly had the tools to do that unless you were going to read EPDs, which is painful. Yeah, it yeah is, that's cumbersome. Yeah, it is a challenge to just think about how to get into the conversation. But I feel like architects have done such a better job. But we control a big chunk of what goes into a building and they've got a pledge on their AIA website. They've got all kinds of climate commitments and we've got not a lot yet. I wrote an article yeah. in January challenging the yeah. industry in, in Fast Company. It was called it's, it's Past Time for Designers to Make Climate Commitments. And yeah. I, it's it's shocking to me, but hopefully we'll get on board soon. I think there's a yeah. lot to do. Furniture. Absolutely. Do, right? I mean, all of all of it, but the, the good thing that I think, and, and I, I think that this was a right quote, but I'm not exactly sure, but you'll get it. Once you know it, you can't unknow it. I don't think that designers have known it. I don't think that they've necessarily thought about it. And if they thought about it, they didn't have the tools to act on it. Yeah. Ignorance is bliss. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And it's yeah. not intentional. You know, it's not anybody's fault. But I know a lot of passionate interior designers who are very passionate about sustainability. And I think that given given the right knowledge and tools, this is exciting, in part because it's measurable. Yeah. You know, I mean, designers are always looking for for how they can measure 
their impact. Sometimes, and I I can sometimes say us because I have the degree in interior design, but, you know, to, to justify ourselves for the impact that we can make, you know, we're not just, we're not just finished specifiers, you know, we're more than that. And this is one way to make a measurable difference and share that. It seems to me that it could be a little overwhelming for designers as well. We were we we had a guest on last week. We had Jane Abernethy from oh, Human yeah. Scale t- talking about the work that she's done to remove toxins and red list ingredients. And Verda, you know, if you remember, we were talking about how you could try to implement that in your own firm and how hard that is to do. And how do you start? How do you turn the page? So now we're talking about removing red list ingredients and removing carbon. It's an amazing opportunity for interior design. Yeah. But but Lisa, what do you say to designers who might feel overwhelmed by this new responsibility? You just have to break it down. What we can't do is nothing. That's That's the only thing that we can't do. If I was still a designer, designers always have groups of friends, might be at multiple firms, they might be at one firm, divide it up. Somebody take drywall, somebody take paint, somebody take carpet, and just share your learnings. Like you don't need to, I, I had a funny, a funny quote from a, a design principal when they had done a, an embodied carbon case study and you know they wanted to get it under their belt so they really understood what was going on and they did it retroactive for a past project because they had their list of finishes done. It took 130 hours. That was the extra time to do it for a project. And you know what he said? To me, I was like, oh God, no one will ever do this. You know what he said? We spent more time designing the feature wall of our own office than it took to reduce the carbon impact, which was almost 50% in those Mm -hmm. 130 hours. Now, once you do that, once you study a material category, you don't need to study it again for the next project. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, that would be what? That would be one person for three weeks, roughly. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's not, depending how you break it up, but you can also just start with the, the highest impact materials. So architects have gotten excited about this conversation and structural engineers because concrete and steel are very high in embodied carbon. So they're figuring out ways to use alternative materials, you know, better versions of those materials, less overall of those materials, or ideally reusing the buildings that we already have. Yeah, that's number one. Absolutely. That would be ideal. And there's a lot of space available out there these days. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, just a little. Yeah. <laughs> but when you get inside of a building and you're talking about interiors, it's MEP is a big driver, which is a tough one because you have to manage the operational carbon savings and the embodied carbon. But the second to that is carpet. Nylon is the second highest embodied energy material, second only to aluminum. No. Ceiling tiles also? I'm trying to think of what other... Ceiling tiles aren't quite as high. I mean, it all depends on what it's all made of um, mm-hmm. and the quantity of them. The panels themselves are not that high. Some of the, you know, what holds ceiling panels in place can be. It all depends. But the point is you kind of like learn these rules of thumb as you go. Right. For carpet, it's recycled nylon. If you're specifying virgin nylon, your carbon footprint's going to be really high. So you don't have to measure anything. You can just specify recycled nylon. Right. But aluminum. 
Yeah, aluminum. I mean, that to me has always been such a friendly material when you put it in this sustainability conversation. It's very highly, it's very high in embodied carbon. It's also very recyclable right. um, and has value in the value. market. Yes. So so there's a lot that comes into this mm. conversation. I almost talk about this, conver- the embodied carbon conversation is Black Lives Matter. <laughs> it's not that all lives don't matter right? Mm-hmm. It's that right. embodied carbon needs attention right now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it just needs to be an additional data point in our decision making. And over time, hopefully that becomes easier. For me, another, you, we talked, you just mentioned carpet and projects, but a lot of that carpet, when you start over, that carpet gets pulled out by the contractor and put right in the dumpster. And nearly every carpet company does have buyback programs, some better than others, but I think a lot of carpet doesn't come back at all. Yeah, a lot of it doesn't come back. There's numbers of like, so most the most carpet that comes back is in the state of California. And that has um, goals of reaching, uh, I think it's 24, right around 24, 25% of all carpet to be recycled. That's that's the threshold for legislation that was passed there. If it's left up to convincing people to do the right thing or complying with a lead project, it just doesn't happen. Full stop. We need more mechanisms like the legislation in California to ensure that that product has an end of life solution. Because even the even the you call them buyback, which is extreme. They take back. <laughs> um, almost nobody is is buying it back. Um, but what ha- the question after? Do you have a buyback or take back program? Is what happens to it? Um, because a lot of those programs are waste to energy. Um, waste to energy uh, keeps it out of the landfill, but it actually creates more carbon emissions than it does um, energy megajoules of energy. So that's not waste to energy is not does not make sense, um, especially here in the U.S. It's actually one of the downfalls of the whole kind of zero waste movement is that often zero waste just means landfill avoidance. And if that's all that we're measuring, Mm. we're missing something. Waste to energy can make more sense in Europe because they have less landfill space. We have tons of landfill space. (laughs) We have too much space for landfills, unfortunately. So we need a lot of mechanisms. We need the political will to do so. We we actually got political for the first time a few years back. We hired a lobbyist to get that legislation passed. In California? Um, yeah. Oh, and great. we actually, I mean, you talk about breaking dishes. We, we lost, we left our industry association, CRI, because they were lobbying against the legislation. And we realized that we were paying for a lobbyist and paying into an organization that was lobbying against our lobbyist. (laughs) Sounds like American politics. Yeah, we're like, we're out. It's really unfortunate. We're doing all we can. You know, we're making old products out of new products or making new products out of old products. Is that the best way to deal with take back products? The best way is for it to be reused. Reused. And ideally locally. Yeah. And that's that's how you have to design that into the product, right? Yeah, so our products are are designed to last so long. For so typically like our education users are the ones who keep it down the longest. They'll keep it down 15 20 years. You know, it comes with a 20-year educational warranty. But most, you know, leases are 5, 7, 10 years. The product is designed to last longer than that. 
So what's most ideal is when it's taken out of a space just because simply a new tenant is coming in and their corporate color is red, that ideally that product is moves to someone else to use because there's there's nothing wrong with it. After those use cycles, after no one would use it anymore, then it can come back to us and um, be turned into our new uh, carbon negative backing. And that's the that is the negative carbon carpetile. So yeah, there's there's two things to talk about. One is carbon negative backings, which is just the backing, and the other is carbon negative products, which is the whole carpet tile. So what we're doing globally is moving our entire platform to carbon negative backings. So it's not this hero product where it's like, if you specify this and pay all these upcharges and wait longer, then you can have the great thing. What, we, what we've done is made the largest investment in Interface's history of $100 million to bring carbon negative backing technology to all of our manufacturing facilities um, around the world. And that's happening on a phased basis. So we're starting here in the U.S. next month. It's moving to a European launch uh, first quarter of next year. And then we'll move to um, Asia Pacific region. That carbon negative backing paired with the recycled content nylon, all of that has will ultimately lower the carbon footprint by about a third. We already have the lowest in the industry, but we're going even further. Now, what we've decided to play with is can we make the whole carpet tile negative so that you can actually say that this carpet tile is part of the solution to reversing global warming. Small as it may be today, it really shows, it really puts the stake out there of this is what we're working towards. So in October, we will be launching uh, three of the styles that launch will be carbon negative in their totality for the total carpet tile. And how we get there is a lower face weight. So the products are 12 ounces or less, but still have a density that can perform. We've dematerialized the kind of uh, latex layer that kind of keeps all those fibers um, adhered. And then the backing, um, we've recycled virgin and recycled with recycled and bio-based. So that the recycled content lowers the footprint, but the bio-based is what gives us the negative because that is what that is plant-based you know, plants absorb that CO2. You think of it all as a math equation. Every ingredient that goes into that carpet tile has a footprint associated with it, whether it's a positive value or a negative value. And then that equation nets out to a negative. Yeah. Are you putting pressure on the industry? Well, we're putting it pressure on the industry by just launching the damn things. <laughs> well, <laughs> right? yeah, I mean, let's hope, yeah, right? Yeah. Let's hope people take note. Yeah, of- absolutely. Does it make, you made this huge investment and then you've got this new product that's a little different and people have to get used to. Does this all make business sense for Interface? For sure. Uh, we're, we're placing a big bet though. We're placing a big bet that as we, as people internalize the impacts of climate change and it affects more of them and they understand more and they make the connection more, that we will be in a leadership position. We are already in a leadership position just with the lowest, but you guys know from your research of Interface, like we don't rest on our laurels. We don't hit mission zero and then be like, all right, we're going to all go take naps now. This is about the next thing. This is about reversal. This is kind of interesting for, for the interior's perspective. We wanted to show it in a product that people specify based on aesthetics. 
there are all kinds of plant-based, all kinds of stuff, right? That you can specify if you don't necessarily care about the aesthetics, you know, things that are behind walls, insulation or ingredients in concrete. Like no one cares what any of that looks like. Everyone cares about what our carpet tile looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're, you're talking a lot about um, embracing negative carbon, negative net zero. Are you working at all with, I know Living Futures Institute with the Living Product Challenge, they talk a lot about handprinting, which is very similar to what we're talking about here. Is there some correlation? Yeah, there's there's correlation in that um, the Living Product Challenge requires you to measure your product's carbon footprint and then offset it. So that can be through you obviously want to reduce as much as humanly possible, so you have to buy um, fewer offsets. The difference with ours is that this is without offsets. So when we're talking about a carbon-negative carpet tile, and even our goal as a company to be carbon-negative by 2040, that is without offsets. And I'm not poo-pooing offsets. Uh, I was just going to ask you, how do you feel yeah. about offsets? Let me, let me I was going to put you on the spot. No, there. let me talk to you, because <laughs> we use offsets. In yeah. fact, we the footprint that remains, the only way for us to get to zero today is with offsets. So even though we're the lowest, we still want to, we call it taking responsibility for our carbon footprint. And that's with all of our products. So we're talking a lot about carpet. That's, you know, the longevity of interface. We have LVT. We also have Nora Rubber. So for all of those products globally, for whatever footprint they do have, we purchase third-party verified, high-quality offsets. And I'd love to give an example of what an offset project does. Because I think people are like, offsets. You know, you're just like buying, like you put it in your cart on Amazon and like check mm-hmm. out, you know? It's like you, you buy your way into yeah, the conversation, yeah. right? So. And it's a dual strategy. It, the conversation is if you're, if someone is saying that their product is carbon neutral and that's with offsets, then you say, that's great. You know, what is your plan for reducing the carbon footprint that remains. That those are the two pieces that just have to be part of the same conversation. I give an example of a of a project that we purchase offsets from that has allowed a lot of these offset projects are are in third world countries. An example of a project is a family might use propane or some sort of dirty fuel to cook their family meals. They have to cook their family meals. That's their that's their sustenance. But what's important is that one of the projects, as an example, is to use clean cook fuels to replace those dirty cook fuels. That does two things, less carbon emissions, but also healthier air to breathe because you don't have those toxic fumes from the, the uh, fuels that you're using that you have to use to cook your family food. So there's a lot of that kind of, um, those kinds of projects that allow for some health co-benefits in addition to just the carbon me- carbon reduction measurement savings. And there's reforestation is a ob- more obvious one. There's all kinds of projects, obviously, but, but there's a lot of really cool ones. We have a list of all the ones that we um, purchased from from last year that we can provide, which I think is helpful to contextualize it. And then, of course, verifying those, making sure that they're real projects that they're completed projects. This isn't Shark Tank. We're not, we're not investing in projects that may or may not work out. We're buying offsets from projects that have been completed. And those projects could only have been done if they knew that selling the offsets at the end was going to be a viable financial possibility. Does that help? 
Yeah, I love that example. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm learning yeah. so much. <laughs> Good. Yeah, and you know, I've 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 often I totally agree with you. I think that carbon offsets are a value. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also give uh, companies the opportunity to be involved in the conversation while they are learning how to improve their operational efficiencies. Yep. Yep. Right. So it's almost a way of of being inclusive. Yeah. Like, hey, you know, you don't have to be an angry environmentalist to be a part of this club. Come on in, learn, learn with us, and you know, pick up some of the weight and let's move this. That's thing. right. So, absolutely, definitely intrigued by the whole aesthetic conversation that we had that conversation early in the year it was one of the first questions my designers always ask is like all right well if we want to specify all these green products show us some that look good but interface interface does lead the way there as well which is great thankfully yeah if we didn't if we didn't make our products beautiful man we'd have a lot of trouble reversing global warming (laughs) it all it all goes together yeah. And I think we're over that too. I think there was a time when if you talked about sustainable building materials, people thought uh, burlap and thatched roofs and we're, we're past that. Just like we're past, you know, there's a premium to it. Well, no, no, not really. The premium is going to come from you tapping the brakes and finding out and learning and, and identifying a systematic way of specifying the right stuff. Yeah. So again, my job here is any opportunity I have to point the finger at Verda and say, Verda, it's you, you designers, you guys got to get your act together. It's true. And we don't have any excuses anymore because there are a lot of good options. So yeah, uh, yeah I, this year has just been crazy. Uh, can you believe this year? I don't know if anybody can. No. Um, has the pandemic, social unrest, this crazy political chaotic Climate shit show. Yeah. Like, oops. There you go. Let's right. Because our Apple PG rating. <laughs> so, has any of this caused you or Interface to change direction or pivot or introduce new measures or think about something more that you need to do? I was shaking my head no because I was thinking just of the of the Sequest, um, which is what we're calling it C for carbon and then play on sequester. Um, backing innovation. But we were supposed to launch that in May. And that's now, you know, it's next month now. And that investment was already made. So that is what it is. I think that we have internally, not necessarily as a result of COVID, but as a result of the unrest around the Black Black Lives Matter movement, just general, how can we be better in areas that are not our expertise, right? You know, people don't, don't call on me to talk about uh, diversity and inclusion, for example. And what we've really realized by kind of looking under the hood is no surprise, right? That everything is just so interconnected. Our mission, and this is something that we've we've recently educated with the help of, do you, do you guys know Catherine Wilkinson from Drawdown, but also a big deal in her own right. She and Dr. Ayanna Wilson, or I'm sorry, um, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, co-edited a book called All We Can Save that just came out um, the 22nd of September. And it's all women at the forefront of the climate movement. And the all we can save is let's not focus on what we can't save. Let's focus on all we can save. And it's a collection of um, 60 
essay, 60 of these women, some are essayists, poets, artists. And we took the opportunity to do an internal education to, to interfacers around where, where does climate and environmental justice, like where does that come into play? Because people of color are disproportionately affected by climate change. You know, we've all heard that. We've started to do a better job of linking those two things so that it's not like you're choosing the environment, which is what interface is good at, and people, right? They're all interconnected. So we're starting to uh, do a better job of listening to our own people of color to create groups where they can um, they can advocate for things that might be missing at interface. You know, one of the things that that you find out really early is when I look at when I look up in the organization, I don't see people like me, you know, things like that. And that I think is, that gives so much more purpose, bringing, bringing everyone along on, on our mission and having more points of view at the table. You know, the, the book that, that, um, that was co-edited by, by those two incredible women was just, just listening to the different voices of how people come at this conversation. It's amazing how different they are. We all agree, but we all come at it for such different personal reasons. I think that hearing those stories and stories are just what's more memorable than statistics. And, you know, if I ran down our ecometrics for you guys, it's just so much more powerful. So I think that we're doing a better job of of internal engagement, of external engagement. And I think that that's as a result of everything that's been happening in the world, for sure. Maybe not necessarily COVID, which has been super weird, but all of that unrest, you know, maybe maybe COVID highlighted that for us as a global society. But I've really enjoyed just learning and listening. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of learning and listening myself. John, I think that asked about Ray Anderson or did you have some other questions? I do. I have a couple. Yeah, absolutely. But I was going to also say that uh, one of the things that we're, as Verda and I have, uh, originally Verda and I had planned on giving in-person presentations. We had a had an epiphany together one morning at breakfast and um, decided, hey, let's get out into the industry. And, you know, Verda being a designer could call on designers to step up and I really wanted to to be a part of that. And of course, COVID hit. So then we decided, let's just, you know, do a podcast because that's really simple and easy. Um, and I'm being really sarcastic because there's nothing simple Sounds or easy. easy about a podcast. I've had a fire verta 17 <laughs> times as a sound technician. <laughs> and then it's it's always really awkward because I have to hire her back. I'm like, okay, but you're on probation and there's another, it's another letter in your, in your personnel file. But we found a couple of common threads in these conversations that we've been so gifted to have. One is that the sustainability movement, I don't think sustainability is the right word anymore because we're not looking to sustain anything. We're looking to fix things and we're looking to create um, environments where people and, and beings thrive. But there is a social, there's a socioeconomic connection now to the environmental conversation, which deepens it. It adds um, content and dimension to it, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And I think what's interesting too, Lisa, that I was going to ask you to speak to is 
it appears that uh, Interface creates these campaigns. And that's that's not a common way of, of when we talk with Dune Ives from the Lonely Whale Foundation, they're very big on campaigns. When we talk to David Stover of Boreo, it's about corporate involvement. And here we have a company that's doing amazing things, but you're using campaigns. And that that's just what works for Interface. Yeah, I mean, if so, we're doing more than campaigns. I mean, you know, you're doing the hard work, oh, yeah. but if you're oh, yeah. if you're not if you're not sharing it and inspiring others to also take action, then your impact is really limited. You know, us making carbon negative carpet tile is not going to reverse global warming, even if all of it one day is, and all of our other flooring and you know, even if just our industry, like if us and our competitors, it needs to be something more inspiring than that. And it needs to, and that usually comes in the form of a, of a campaign of asking people to activate somehow. When I was reading the All We Can Save book, I'm like, God, I'm not doing enough, you know, which my husband would be like, what? But it's like, <laughs> no, like there, I have more to give, you know, and, uh, and that's what you want to inspire people to do because that makes the collective impact just so much bigger. And then we have a fighting chance. So yeah, communications and and campaigns are a huge part of that. Yeah. And you use the word inspire. And I think that's what it, that's what it's meant to do. If you can inspire people the way Ray inspired this employee, Glenn Thomas, that's really what it's all about. And I, and Verta's right. I did have a couple of questions for you because I know that you were there during Ray Anderson's time, but actually, you know, we're running low on time and I gave Ray a bit of a nod by reading that poem. And I think it's perfectly okay for this podcast to be about your voice and what Interface is doing today. And I think Ray would be perfectly happy to know that we've moved to we've moved to the next phase. And I think that listening to you talk about embodied carbon has been amazing. I I that's a new conversation for us, Verda. We're gonna start judging people now because that's what we need. We need we need reasons to judge people, right? It's like, you know what? Not only are you not wearing a mask, but I don't but I don't think you care much about embodied carbon. Exactly. Either. Where did you ship that mask from? <laughs> So, Verda, I don't know. We have to let her go. I hate to let her go because it's been so much fun talking I with wanna, you, Lisa. But Verda, I want to ask you one more yeah. question, and maybe you don't have an answer, but just I, I love this idea of inspiring others and bringing more people along because you're right. That is the only way we're going to make a dent or make a difference or, or make the change that we need to, to get done in time. Do you have any examples of anybody outside of our industry other com- corporations that you've influenced by what you've done, what Interface has done? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we actually used to have a, a consultancy arm. Um, one of the biggest examples is Walmart. Walmart, yeah, have you heard of them? They're small. <laughs> very, very small. That was one that, that was, it was really about, first, Walmart's impact as far as their own operations, but then reaching into their supply chain as well. Because that's one of those examples where if you can point to it and say, we influenced Walmart, like we have a fighting chance, you know, same thing with, with all the big names. You know, one thing that I never tire of in my job is meeting people who knew Ray and were inspired by Ray. I never tire of hearing that. And I don't, you know, I don't 
No one has to know Lisa Conway. If they know the story of Ray, which back, I mean, it was the 90s. Almost no one was doing anything, really. Mm. And, and especially in such a non-sexy industry, like flooring or just manufacturing in general. And I will never tire of people that I find in organizations, like literally every organization that I meet with knew him or studied him in school or, oh yeah, I heard of Interface. What do you guys do again? That is really powerful. So if the story sticks and they don't remember that we sell flooring, like that's a problem for selling flooring, but it has moved, <laughs> it has moved industry. And, you know, I, I think that Ray would look down on me now and be like, oh, that sales rep from Philly? He's like, he's doing full-time sustainability at my company. I think he'd be like, what? <laughs> I think he'd get a kick out well, of it. But, um, yeah. you know, I think the fact that anyone wants to go out there and spread the gospel like he did, he'd be so proud of. I mean, we have salespeople that do that. We have engineers. We've got, you know, everybody in all corners of the company that are just so excited that they that they work for our company and I love it and it's fun. Like one of the most thing most important things for people to do is when you're dealing with heavy topics like climate change, like embodied carbon, you have to have fun with it. I mean, Jesus, we're talking about embodied carbon. That's hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like we just talked for an, almost an right. hour about embodied carbon. Oh, yeah. What is wrong with us? Yeah. Well, and the sad <laughs> thing is, right you know, about us. <laughs> in a couple of days, in a couple of days, I'll be yelling at my four kids, going, "How come nobody's listened to my embodied carbon <laughs> yeah, podcast? Yeah. Put that stupid Kanye West thing away and listen to my breaking breaks right. dishes embodied carbon That's podcast." Right. Damn it! So we're gonna make it. You know what, Lisa? If anybody can make it sexy, Verda and I there can. You go. So don't you worry. <laughs> You, I, you know, I, I just want to say you're an, a, an outstanding voice and brand for Interface. You're doing an amazing job. Uh, Verda and I both want you to keep doing what you're doing yeah. because you, you're making a difference, right? Thank and you're doing that. Oh, yeah. Thank you can't you. shake it once it's, once it's in you. So yeah. you just need to get it in more people. So thank you well, for helping spread the word. Yeah, we're honored to be able to, to carry it on and have these kind of conversations. And it's a gift to be able to, to learn from people like yourself that, uh, you know, you're walking the walk and talking the talk. So it's been great. And thank you. We thank you very much from the bottom of our hearts for your time. No problem. Today. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Lisa. Keep it playing.